All right. Walker, you good? Um, good evening, everybody. Welcome to RUF. So glad to have you tonight. Hope everyone's having a good spring term. Prettiest day of the year today. Pretty awesome. I'm pretty stoked about it. We're, we're continuing our little uh, mini, mini series on uh, what it means to be a person. And we talked last week about how we are people who are made in God's image. And so uh, as people who are made in his image, in his likeness, who are like him, everything that we are comes from him. And so what it means to be a person is to participate in the life of God. So we actually participate in his rule and his reverence and his relationship in the world. That, that's just true for all people. What we're going to talk tonight about is a little more of what, what is the experience of that in, in real life. And, and so we're going to be um, looking at 2 Corinthians 3. 12 to 18. We don't have handouts tonight, but I, I give you permission to use your device. It'd be great if you'd have that text in front of you uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, as you are turning there, um, I, I want to explain uh, that you can't really understand this verse without understanding a story in the Old Testament. Um, there's, there's reference to Moses and the veil and God's glory in this 2 Corinthians passage, which is a reference back to, to Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, if, you, if you've read Exodus, you know that at the beginning, God's people, Israel, are uh, in slavery in Egypt under terrible conditions. And they cry out to God, and God hears them, and God rescues them out of Egypt. He, he sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. He sends the plagues. He ends up leading them out. He leads them through the Red Sea. He guides them in the wilderness uh, with his presence, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day. And he leads them in Exodus 19 to Mount Sinai. Uh, and that's where... Uh, Moses goes up on the top of the mountain into the glory cloud, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments is Exodus 20. So we're, we're a few chapters past that now. Uh, and Moses uh, is continuing to, to mediate between God and the people. And now that God's rescued them, he's sort of making his relationship with them more official. That's part of what the Ten Commandments is, and God makes promises as well. And, and so what happens is that Moses goes up on the mountain, and talks to God, or Moses goes into the tent of meeting, which is this tent that God commanded them to build, where literally Moses would go in, and then that glory cloud would like go into like the doorway of the tent, and Moses would talk to God, and then he would go and talk to the people. And when Moses would come out, uh, his face would be shining. It would be glowing. It would be radiating glory because of his exposure to God. And the people could not handle it. And in fact, at one point, Moses says, uh, Lord, go, like, go out with us. Don't, don't leave us. And God says, if I go out among you, I will consume you. There's this sense that the people cannot handle God's glory. That because of, uh, the, the Bible says they're, they're a stiff-necked people. Because of their stubbornness, because of their sin, because of their impurity, they cannot come into contact with God's presence, which is so perfectly, powerfully pure. or Like, it will melt them. He's like, a, he's like a nuclear reactor of holiness. And so what happens is that when Moses comes out, he, he puts a veil over his face. He covers his face literally with, the, with a piece of cloth. And so what, what that literally is and what it, what it represents in our passage that we're going to look at tonight is, is a separation. is a boundary between God's people and between God. is a separation between us and his fullness. Between us and the experience of his glory. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, meaning the law, the Old Testament, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your word. Thanks for the gift of instruments and voices and harmony and uh, the emotion of music that is a gift from you as well. We're, we're, we're glad to take a, a chance to stop and to worship you. Thanks for the gift of the sunshine and the flowers and the mountains. I, I pray right now that you would help us to listen, what you might be speaking to us, that your Holy Spirit would work through your word right now so that we might love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this uh, great Winnie the Pooh chapter where Pooh Bear is walking through the Hundred Acre Woods and he's just singing a song to himself. He's already done his stoutness exercises for the day at this point. And uh, he comes across uh, the rabbit's hole into Rabbit's house. And he thinks to himself, I bet if I uh, call out to Rabbit, hello, Rabbit, I could go in there and get a snack. Rabbit always has good food in his pantry. And so Pooh Bear calls in. Rabbit pretends not to be there, but by pretending not to be there, he gives away that he's there, which is foolish. And so uh, Pooh goes in, and Rabbit sort of begrudgingly offers him his choice. Well, what would you like? I have some honey, and I have some sweetened condensed milk. Which would you like? And Pooh says, yes, please. And Pooh proceeds to eat, like, all of Rabbit's food, every bit of it, all the honey, all the, all the condensed milk. Uh, and he finishes, and uh, he kind of licks the last of the honey off his fingers, and then he uh, leaves Rabbit's Hole. And he uh, starts to climb through, and he gets his nose through, and he gets his head through, and he gets his arms through, and then he can't go any further. And so he's sort of wriggling his belly, and he's sort of inching his way forward, just like that. And he can see where he wants to go. He can see out to the grand adventures that lay ahead in that beautiful day in the Hundred Acre Wood, but he's stuck. He cannot get where he wants to go. He's stuck. As we think about what it means to be made in God's image, the dignity of that, the power of that, the potential for love, the capacity to know and be, and be experienced in relationship with other people, as we consider that and as we consider the fullness of joy that Jesus calls us to and that the Bible says are offered to us by his free grace, it, it, it's like we're in this... It's like we're in this tunnel and we can see where we want to go and we're wriggling towards it and we just get stuck. We can't seem to quite get where we want to be. We can't seem to, to reach over that horizon. We, we, we want to grow in all these wonderful ways and we can't seem to do it. We want to change who we are in all these ways and we can't seem to change. We want to leave behind these habitual sins and we can't seem to leave them behind. We want to mature in certain ways in our life and our faith and we can't seem to figure out how to do it. We... We feel stuck. That, that's, a common, that's part of the common experience of what it is to be a person. Especially if you're a person who is in Christ. I, I'm, I'm sure not everyone here tonight is a Christian. But if you're in Christ, we, we know where we want to go. We want to grow in Christ. We want to grow in faith. We want to grow in hope and love. But we just feel stuck. Like we aren't quite what we were made to be. Uh, one uh, famous local scholar describes it as 
like a beautiful painting. But that painting has been smeared with black ink. And so underneath this black ink, there's this original picture, and it's still beautiful, but you can't really see it, or maybe only dimly because it's, because it's covered. And, that, and that's us, right? And just like the Israelites, the thing that is smearing this painting, the thing that is making us stuck is, is our sinfulness. It's our stubbornness. It's our selfishness. It's, it's keeping us from experiencing the fullness of who God is. So what we're going to see as we look at 2 Corinthians 3 tonight is that there is in Christ a way to get unstuck. There is a process to get unstuck so that you actually can grow, so you actually can change, so you actually can mature, so you can actually get where you want to go. There is a process for that in Christ of getting unstuck. It's a three-part process. And here here are the three parts. There's the turn, there's the transformation, and then there's the telling. The turn... The transformation and the telling. So, so first, the turn. Uh, again, according to according to God's word, the thing that is making us stuck, the thing that is keeping us from getting where we want to go, is the veil. It is that there is separation between us and God. That there is something that is keeping us from experiencing the fullness of what God has given us in Christ. And that that veil is, is our fault. It is our sinfulness. It is our selfishness. It is our impurity. So what do we do? Well, he tells us in verse 16, he says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the first thing we got to ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to turn to the Lord? Because it, it doesn't mean knowing the right answer to a question about Jesus or the Bible. It does not mean making a few decisions. Uh, it is a turning. It is a course correction. It is recalibrating our trajectory so that we are no longer going one way and we are moving in another way. It means we actually have to say no to something and we have to say yes to something in turning to Jesus. And, and what we have to say no to is we have to look around at the things that, that, that are running our lives. We, we have to look around at, at our grades, at our bodies, at our GPA, at our resume, at our relationship status. We have to, we have to look at the things, whatever that is for you that is sort of running your life, and we have to say No, you don't get to run my life anymore. No, you don't get to determine my happiness anymore. No, you don't get to decide what motivates my decisions anymore. We actually have to say no to those things. That's a really hard thing to do. But turning to God, the Christian word for it would be repentance, is actually not just about saying no. It's actually about saying yes. It's about displacing that part of our heart with something else. It's about saying, Jesus, yes, I want you to run my life. Jesus, I want you to determine how I spend my time. Jesus, I want you to, to, to motivate the decisions that I am making in every moment of my life. It's a saying no, and it's a saying yes. And I, I think this requires a lot of us, if we're honest. I think it requires at least, at least three things. The first thing it requires is an honest inward look. And, and that's sort of the inventory of what are those things for you that are running your life. 
that are determining your motivations and your decisions and your relationships. We have to honestly ask ourselves, what is the thing that makes me do what I do? And we have to be honest with ourselves. It's an honest inward look. The second thing we have to do is a, is a humble confession. That's where we tell God what we've been letting run our lives instead of him. But, but it's not just a saying, I'm sorry. You know, you guys have probably all been in a situation where you feel bad about something and you say you're sorry, but you're just kind of saying it to try to resolve the situation. Like you hope the other person doesn't say anything else and you can just drop it. You know what I'm talking about? Of course you do. We do this with God all the time. Sorry, God. Let's not, let's, I don't want to deal with that. I said I'm sorry. Let's move on. Forgiven, right? It's not just a saying I'm sorry. It's not just a confession. What happens is we experience the love of Jesus is that it cultivates what the Bible calls a contrite heart. We don't like our sin. We actually hate that we choose other things over Jesus to run our life. That's what humble confession is. And then, and then the third thing that it requires is a faithful acceptance, a confidence, a trust that life in Jesus is real life. That love in Jesus is true love. That hope in Jesus is eternal and lasting hope, the only one there is. It takes all three of those things. That's what it means to turn to Jesus. Uh, I was in late, early high school when The Matrix came out. And there's this great scene at the end of the, at the, end of the Matrix where Neo, which is Keanu Reeves, is fighting against these agents. And like no one can stand up to an agent. And The Matrix, if you haven't seen it, is, is about how, how the world, the world which we experience, every part of our lives... It is not actually the real world. It's actually a computer simulation that everybody is, is jacked into, is plugged into. And so uh, Neo in the Matrix, in this computer simulation, is fighting against these agents, and he's, he's getting crushed. He's getting killed. He's getting beaten up. And, and eventually, one of them catches him off guard. He opens up a door, and he's standing there, and he shoots him in the chest. And Neo falls. And you think, you think like the movie's over, like Neo's dead. Bad guys win. But, but for some reason, it's in that moment that Neo realizes and finally accepts, like deep down in his mind, in his imagination, in his heart, that what he sees is not the real world. That there is some greater world outside, and that is what determines who he is and what he does. And so he stands up, and the agents turn, and they just open their pistols, they unload their pistols, and they, and they shoot their whole clips, and there's this you know, wave of slow motion bullets, and he just turns and he says, No. And they just stop. And you like see the sound waves kind of dissipate. And they just stop and they fall to the ground. Because there's just tremendous power in realizing I don't have to play by the rules of this experience because this is not the real world. I'm saying no to this and yes to a different reality. That's turning to Jesus. It is looking at the world around you and saying, no, I am not going to play by these rules. There is a greater reality of Jesus and his kingdom. And that is what I'm going to say yes to. We do this, if you're a Christian, you've done this kind of once and for all when you came to believe in Jesus. You've done it once and for all. You're in. But of course we know that we're constantly distracted away from that true reality, right? We constantly look around and we say, this feels pretty real. Everyone around me seems to think this is real. We're constantly tempted. We're constantly turning away from Jesus and back to the things of our own selfish desires of the world of our sins. And so this turning to Jesus, this inward look, this humble confession, this saying yes to Jesus, 
and accepting him in faith, we actually have to do it all the time. It's a lifelong thing. We have to do it 50 times a day. And so the question for you tonight, whether it's the first time you've ever considered it or whether you've been a Christian your whole life, is where is God calling you to turn? Where is God calling you to look at your life and say, no, I'm not going to live by those fake rules anymore. I'm going to live by the rules of Jesus and his kingdom. I'm going to say yes to Jesus. Because I think true life, true love, true hope is found in him. The first step is the turn. The, the second step is the transformation. The, the turn, this first step, it is really hard. It's really hard. It, it, it requires us to be really self-aware. It requires us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. It requires us to be humble enough to know that we're not doing it on our own. It requires us to step out in faith and trust in Jesus. I mean, it actually requires a lot of us, a lot of us but, but what it leads to, according to this passage, is freedom. It leads to freedom. It leads to transformation. It, it leads to the removal of the veil and the beholding of the glory of God. That is what happens when you turn to Jesus. The veil is removed and you're now having a different experience. It's like when Neo looks around and he doesn't see the walls anymore. He sees the code. He sees the real world. When we turn, we behold the glory of God. That's what we experience. Now here's what I mean. Because you may have been a Christian a long time and you may be thinking... I don't know what you're talking about. I've never, like, seen glory before, okay? Here's what it means to experience the glory of God. It's to be in a relationship with the same God who created the universe just by speaking, where he sees you, and he knows you, and I mean really knows you, every secret thought, every nasty motivation and desire. He sees you, everything you've done, and he loves you. It's to be in a relationship with a God who loves you so much that he's willing to sacrificially give his own life away, to endure pain and suffering and rejection and isolation, to shed his blood just so he can save you, just so you can experience the forgiveness of your sins, so that the ultimate reality for you is no longer impure, stiff-necked. It is white as snow. That's what it means to experience the glory of God it is to receive the gift of his spirit, which is a spirit not of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. So that you are actually in power to keep turning to Jesus, to say yes, to resist temptation, to grow, to change. We experience the Holy Spirit. It's freedom from guilt. It's freedom from shame that haunts us. It's that joy that fullness of joy that we can experience in every circumstance because Jesus is with us. That's what I mean when I say we behold his glory. We actually, those things become real for us when the veil is removed and we turn to Jesus. It's not something we do. We don't grow ourselves. We don't change ourselves. We don't transform ourselves. We don't mature ourselves as this same local, great local scholar said, we're utterly helpless to lift the veil ourselves. We can't do it. But as God does it, we experience his glory and it causes us to be transformed. That's not something you can avoid. 
If you don't want to be changed, don't turn to Jesus. But if you turn to him, you will be changed. You will be. He promises it. He promises that will happen. The change that you long for is not a matter of are you strong enough to do it. That's not a matter of just try harder. It's a matter of have you turned to Jesus? Because if you do, you will be changed. So the challenge for us, again, is to look at all these places in our life and say, where have I not yet turned to Jesus? Where have I not yet let go? Where have I not yet said yes? This transformation uh, is a gradual one. And sometimes that is painful. That's why Paul says, beholding his, beholding his glory with unveiled faces, we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. It's like he's saying, it's baby steps. It's a little bit at a time. Sometimes it seems like it's not even happening. It's happening so slow. Sometimes nothing happens and then there's a moment in our life or a short scene of our life where we feel like we're experiencing tons of change and tons of growth and tons of maturity. We can't explain that. We don't know how he works. It requires us to be patient with ourselves and with other people because we are all a people who are in process. So when you see someone else and they are a Christian and they're struggling, we don't think, come on, like why don't you have this all figured out? When we look at ourselves, we don't beat ourselves up and say, why do I keep messing up like this? You're being transformed one degree to another. But the trajectory that you are on if you have turned to Jesus is one in which there is a day where you will be fully transformed, fully perfected, fully purified. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the day of the Lord when he returns and we share in his resurrection life. And then our purity will be perfect. Our obedience will be perfect. Our love will be perfect. Our joy will be perfect. And we're taking baby steps on this side of heaven. So we have to be patient and we have to hope. There's the turn. There's the transformation. And then the third step is the telling. Paul says it like this in verse 12. He says... Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. I love that. I love it and I hate it. Because I don't always feel like, when people ask me how I'm doing, I'm like, I'm good, I'm very bold. I don't say that very often. I feel timid, I feel weak, I feel scared, I feel hesitant all the time. We do, right? But as we, um, as we are turning to Jesus... And as we are experiencing the fullness of his glory and are being transformed, we are empowered to live boldly for Christ in the world. We're empowered to be very bold. And, and we do this in, in, in two ways. The, the first is that uh, in our lives, by the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we relate to other people, we live boldly in such a way that we bear witness to the fullness of Christ that we are encountering. Jesus says it like, like this in Matthew 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about salt and light. He says, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. The way you live before other people, the way you interact with other people, the way they see you going about your day is a part of your witness to who Jesus is in your life. So how you live matters and you have been freed to live boldly. So as we are turning to Jesus, as we are being transformed, as his goodness and mercy and love is sinking into our sin and taking up residence in our hearts and our minds and our imaginations in our very bodies, 
We're empowered to live boldly in the ways that we relate to other people. To live boldly for Christ in the way that we relate to alcohol. To live boldly for Christ the way we relate to our sexuality. To live boldly for Christ the way we think about our health. To live boldly for Christ the way we think about success. To live boldly for Christ in the way we're friends. The way we embody forgiveness and hospitality and generosity. The way we befriend people who don't have friends. Who aren't as popular, who aren't as lovely. Uh, As we do those things, we actually are telling the gospel. Where are you being called to live more boldly for Jesus in your life? That's hard enough. The second one sounds even harder, of course. It's that we tell it by telling it. We tell the good news. We share the good news by speaking it, by talking about it, by sharing it with the people around us. We, we can be tempted to think, and this is sort of what the world around here tells us, that Religion is a private thing. Like you do you, I'm going to do me. It's just one of those things you don't talk about, you don't bring up in case you don't, you don't agree. I, I think an even bigger problem, uh, a, big, a bigger obstacle is that in our culture today, you live, on the, you live on the forefront of this on a college campus, the ultimate virtue is tolerance. You feel that? is acceptance. What you are supposed to do if you're a good person is to accept everyone else for who they are. And that the worst sin you can commit is to tell someone else that what they believe and what they are and what they're doing is wrong. And to impose what you happen to think on them. It's an infringement on their humanity. It's an infringement on their right, their freedom to be and say and do whatever they want just as long as they're not infringing on someone else's right to do that. And so to share our face, it, it, it feels like we're breaking the cardinal rule of our culture. It feels like we're being intolerant. Do you feel that? I feel that. So how do we do it? How do we tell the good news? How do we, how do we extend our transformational experience to other people with our words in that kind of culture? I, I am convinced that the way to tell the good news of the gospel is by being really good friends. That's, that's what I'm convinced by. Being the kind of friends who embody the gospel. Who are generous to others like God is generous to us. Who are hospitable, who welcome other people to their own lives the way God welcomes us into his. Who forgive other people when they don't deserve it, just like God forgives us when we don't deserve it. Whose hearts are broken with compassion towards other people and their need, like God's is towards us who give of their time and their energy to be with other people when they need it, just like God is for us. This is the whole motion of Jesus, right? It is God coming down to us, into the mess and the filth of our life to be with us in our need. I am convinced that by being that kind of a friend, not only are we obeying God, who I think commands us to act like that in general with other people, but I think it actually creates space to tell people about Jesus. Because if you are a friend like this and you are hanging out with, with one of your friends who you have tried to exemplify this, and of course we mess up, right? The beauty of this is that part of it is forgiveness, which means we'll have to ask for forgiveness when we mess up as friends. It's beautiful. It's like problem solved. The, it, 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 as you live as this kind of a friend and then you tell someone, hey, I'd love to tell you about 
like my kind of spiritual thoughts, and I'd love to hear about yours, they are not going to freak out and think that you are imposing on them and shoving something down their throat and infringing their rights to believe what they want. You know why they won't think that? Because they'll trust that you care about them because they've experienced you caring for them. And you probably know because you have friends that building that kind of trust, it does not take four years of college. It takes like a semester. It takes like a class. It takes a pledge ship. It takes a, a year on a team. That's actually all it takes. And so if you have been friends with someone for three years and you're like, ah, I just don't feel like I've like earned that trust yet, time to step it up. <laughs> you probably earned it by now. Now, you don't have to talk about Jesus every time you're with a friend to be a good Christian. You, you don't have to, hear me, you don't have to do that. But it is not an option, if you are a Christian, to never do it. It's not an option. What you are doing is you are depriving them of a chance to be who they want to be, to grow in the ways that they might grow, to mature in the ways that they might mature, to change in the ways that more exemplify goodness and beauty and truth. You're depriving them of that if you're too afraid to tell them. So what we do is we try to be good friends, the kind of friends that Jesus is to us, and then we prayerfully consider how and when we might start to have some awkward conversations. It's all... It's as simple as that. The conversation's easy once you get started. You probably had this experience. It's like asking somebody out. Like figuring out how to get to that point in the conversation is like incredibly painful. But then like once, once they said yes and you're talking about where you're going to go, it's like not as bad. It's actually pretty fun. People like talking about their hearts. They like talking about their longings. They like talking about their desires. They even like talking about their fears. They need to talk about it with somebody. It's what friends do. Winnie the Pooh is in the hole. He's stuck. He can't go backwards. He can't go frontwards. Rabbit is so confused about the decor of his house now that there is the rear hind end of a stuffed bear and his feet dangling in this house that he's hung kitchen towels on his feet so that it looks like it blends in with the decorations. And Pooh is acting a little, a little naive about the situation. He's in a little denial. Uh, the, 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 the vibe you get from him is that Pooh's like, huh, this is so weird. I fit through the hole on the way in. Why don't I fit on the way out? I wonder what could have happened. Did the hole shrink? And of course, as the reader, we know like you, you gorged yourself on honey, so you're swollen in the belly now. Like It's pretty obvious what's happening, right? You shouldn't be surprised that you're stuck and you can't get where you want to go. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We get drunk every weekend and then we wonder why we feel distant from God. We're sleeping with our boyfriend and we wonder why we don't have this fullness of joy we talked about all semester in RUF. We're not spending any time reading God's word, his revelation of his goodness to us and we wonder why we can't like, get rid of these habitual sins that we wish we could get rid of. We're gorging on honey and then we're wondering why am I stuck? What, what Pooh has to do, what Pooh Bear has to do, is he just has to wait. He just has to wait until he gets thin again, and then his friends pull him out. That's what we have to do. Now, we don't wait the same way Pooh did. I want to be real careful, because sometimes when it comes to looking at certain kinds of things on the Internet, when it comes to drinking, when it comes to messing up in certain kind of ways, we tend to have this attitude where we, where we look at it and we say, okay, uh, if I can like not do that, if I can stay clean for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, 
it's kind of like I'll slim down spiritually and then I'll be able to get unstuck. That's something I can control, right? That is not the gospel. Only Jesus can do it. So I don't mean that. What I mean is that sometimes it takes a little time to build up the courage to say no to things and turn to Jesus. And that's okay. And it takes time for this transformative experience of the fullness of Christ to sink into us enough to start to change us in noticeable ways. It takes time. And that's okay. And sometimes it feels like we have to wait. And then what we need is our friends to grab us by the arms and yank us out of the hole. To unstick us. You don't need to try to figure out how to be transformed. God's going to do it. We need to help each other. We need to be the kind of friends that are encouraging each other, praying for each other, holding each other accountable to turn to him and to tell of his goodness boldly. This is actually the kind of friend that Jesus has been to us. His love for us is perfect, and he calls us to be that kind of friend to one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you show us your glory, the fullness of who you are, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, your presence with us, and all we have to do is turn to you. Lord, I do pray that you would give us the courage to say no to the reality of this world and say yes to the reality of you and your kingdom. I pray that each of us would experience the riches of an encounter with your glory, and I pray that you would make us very bold so that with our lives and with our words, we would, we would tell of this transformative experience of grace and love. Lord, we can't do it alone. We can't get unstuck by ourselves. Help us to be the kind of friends who are willing to walk, to take time, to get down in the dirt and pull each other up. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.